Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 27, 2019. This share ID number for Friday, January 25th, for the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,462. That's 12462. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,464. That's one, two, four, six, four. This morning, A Vision for You presents Growing in Understanding and Effectiveness. Step 10 states, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. The purpose of steps 1 through 9 is a personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening. The big book provides clear directions as to how you can experience a personality change to overcome compulsive overeating. The big book also gives us a very clear warning. If we do not keep in fit spiritual condition, we will relapse. Our mental obsession will return. We will become insane again. How do we keep in fit spiritual condition? One part of that vital process includes step 10. Step 10 captures the steps 4 through 9 process on a daily basis. It allows us to identify and have removed the spiritual sludge produced daily by our self-will. A life in recovery certainly includes facing challenges and adjustments. With God's help, there are new skills and new behaviors to develop and new attitudes to practice. The big book stresses the importance of living by spiritual principles. The steps continue to catalyze our inner growth, our new attitudes, and new spirit. Our way of life is the path which leads to growing in understanding and effectiveness. Here today to share with us their experience regarding Step 10 are three recovered compulsive overeaters. We have Gina R. from Arizona, Greg B. from California, and Melissa C. from New York. So let's get started with our first panelist, Gina R. Welcome to the line, Gina. Thank you, Leah. I'm Gina R., gratefully recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, living in Green Valley, Arizona. God, would you please bless the words you have given me, and may those who have ears to hear and hearts to receive what you intend for them. Amen. Rather than uh, give a full qualification today, I'm going to point you to a special edition that I offered on December 10th, 2017, titled Living a Prayed and Measured Life. Um, The disease of addiction and compulsive behavior has been a part of my life since my conception. My immediate and extended family had several forms. My initial manifestation to manage and exert control over my life is primarily through food. I was freed from the compulsion to consume and think about these foods on May 17, 2016 and became reacquainted with the steps in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous at that time. It was in the fall of that year, 2016, that I realized 
I was recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I was not living in the bedevilments anymore, but rather in the ninth and tenth step promises. And I want to give you a little contrast between the bedevilments and the promises and what's happened for me as a result of working this program of action. Um, and I go pretty fast through these. Um, the bedevilment, we were having trouble with personal relationships, the promise. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Bedevilment, we couldn't control our emotional natures. Promise, we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Bedevilment, we were a prey to misery and depression. Promise, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Bedevilment, we couldn't make a living. Promise, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Bedevilment, we had a feeling of uselessness. Promise, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Bedevilment, we were full of fear. Promise, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And bedevilment, we were unhappy. Promise, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Bedevilment, we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Promise, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And then the ninth step promise that means the most to me we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then that flows into the 10th step promises, which partly reads, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. This is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So prior to this recovered state, I had been exposed to the big book through the primary uh, fellowship in 1985. And while I didn't consume alcohol after that date, um, I did continue to be affected by those bedevilments. And I used food and workaholism to control my emotional nature. Because I was naturally wired to be that kind of take charge type of personality, my work revolved around me taking on more and more responsibility and volume of work. For a long time, I was able to do it. One would call me a high-functioning addict, and I used food as a performance drug. However, life fell apart in 2006 as I was diagnosed with cancer. <clears throat> I was told it would be a good idea for me to give up sugar as cancer cells feed on it. But because I had also been told that because of the chemotherapy and steroids I would receive, I would likely gain up to 50 pounds. I threw caution to the wind and I ate the way I had always been eating and I did gain that weight. And I used um, that as an excuse to continue eating compulsively. I topped out at over 200 pounds. And today, I'm very grateful to say that um, I'm in a healthy weight range, releasing over 50 pounds. But even more important than that physical weight is the emotional freedom I now experience on a daily basis. Um, layer red, step 10, and I'll just say it again, continue to take personal inventory when we promptly admitted it, or, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. The part that I failed to recognize and heed was the last half of that step. 
my history was once I began to feel good, I just simply ignored doing the rest of the work. I didn't think I needed to do it. A major difference now is the connections I have built with others in this program and outside the program um, who are recovered or on their way by working the steps. This includes guiding individuals by uh, working the 12 steps through the steps and working with others by actively taking and offering 10 steps and doing general outreach calls. I do this individually and with, uh, within a couple of groups using some texting technology. I have noticed that for myself and many others, the same stuff seems to come up repeatedly. And I got to the point one day just wondering why. I'm like, God, what, what is going on with this? And I was pointed back to the fourth step process specifically around the topic of a sane and sound ideal. And on page 69, there are some keywords. It says, in this way, we try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? And then we asked God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in doing so. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. And then on page 70, it says, suppose we fall short of the chosen, the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we are going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half truth. It depends on our motives. We must we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and the strength to do the right thing. So when I went through this part of my four-step, my guide invited me to view the portion on sex in an expanded way. Instead of solely looking at it in the context of a sexual relationship, I would look at all of my relationships and how I show up as a female in them. How had I used my sex powers and family relationships, with friends, in work relationships, with perfect strangers, with institutions, with ideas, etc.? This was completely different than what, how I had done it before, and it uncovered insights about myself that were helpful and revealing, and troubling, quite frankly. That was as far as I took it at that point. It wasn't until I really began working with others by guiding them through the steps and offering and receiving 10 steps regularly that I realized I had glided over some significant parts of the work. I had not fully processed praying for a sane and sound ideal for all of my relationships and then coming up with what that ideal is, not just praying for it, but actually constructing it. So as I reviewed my character defects and the pattern my behavior displays when those are in full force, God revealed some key insights. I was able to see that my primary defects in relationships include being controlling, superior, impatient, unkind, judgmental, and argumentative. And I can do those all at the same time at once. So when I become restless, irritable, or discontent, the chances of those defects and unhelpful core beliefs arising are pretty high. So as I work through the 10-step process and ask where I'm being self-seeking or selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and afraid, it becomes clear 
that I haven't given sufficient consideration to what God's ideal would be for me in that situation. Rather, my ego regenerates and I'm stuck in the old behavior. When I have clarity on what my role is in the relationship and I am clear on what God's ideal is, then I have an attainable target. And I kind of see this like having a food plan. A food plan is simply an ideal outlining what I can eat, which will bring me healing, while also identifying the addictive foods and behaviors that trigger the physical allergy, phenomena of craving, and mental obsession. The bottom line is we need to know what these ideals are and practice them every day. Meditate on them every day. So just as I abstain from foods that hurt me, my relationship ideal shows me how to abstain from distorted thoughts and behaviors that keep me stuck in my ego. So now I align myself with whatever I call is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And when I think about and meditate upon these things, I am filled with peace, and I can extend that peace to others. However, when I stay focused on the character defects and continue to talk about them, that is what tends to grow instead of the ideal. I hear others express the same sentiment when I ask them about their relationship ideals. They indicate they don't have a clear idea about this, but it resonates as they keep repeating the same resentments, fear inventories over and over. So the way I see it now is once I have that clear idea of what my character defects are, I'm able to recognize when they crop up and I'm open to God showing me what the ideal looks like for the given situation then I'm a free agent. I'm able to receive and act upon the power I receive from God in that moment and do something about it. So I'm going to give you an illustration here of how I go about this in my marriage relationship because that's the one that God uses over and over to get my attention, to teach me, and to reduce my ego. So the following are characteristics for me to uphold not to find in the other person. A lot of people get mixed up on that ideal. They think that's about, like I'm looking for these qualities in another person. That isn't what this is about. This is about me looking, not me looking for the right person, but allowing God to mold me into becoming the right person and having peace with myself. And I say, if I'm not the problem, there's not a solution. So here's what my relationship ideal for my marriage looks like and how I measure any 10-step situation I have with my husband. Again, my predominant character defects are being controlling, sense of superiority, impatient, unkind, judgmental, and being argumentative. These are the cues I look for to know that I am going to have an opportunity to refocus on the relationship ideal. So within my ideal, there are four categories that run counter to being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and afraid. And then within each of those categories, I will describe what my behavior would look like when it's aligned with God's will and operating out of the ideal. Need to grab a quick drink here. Hold on. So the first category is being unselfish. This is where I'm a true partner versus being selfish. I can understand my husband. He has his own higher power. I can accept that he has his own way of doing things. I can see his point of view. I don't have to agree with it, but I can see it. I know he is God's creation and right where he's supposed to be. 
I'm generous toward him. I am content to share my portion. I respond from a position of love. I exhibit humility. I actively work to be his friend, and I am concerned with his needs. The second category is to be honest and trustworthy versus being dishonest and delusional. This is where I can see and admit where I am at fault. I have a conciliatory attitude. I accept responsibility for my problems. I can and do admit I've done the same thing, whatever is bugging me. I express feelings and ideas in a non-judgmental way. I happily face facts. I accept reality. I'm able, I am able and I take action to accurately reflect what is going on with me in the moment. I accept him as he is. I am flexible and resilient. The third category is to be selfless, interested in his development versus my self-seeking. I am humble. I am uncalculating. I edify rather than tear him down. I allow things to unfold rather than manipulate. I take note of his needs. I allow him his own freedom to live his life. I can express acceptance when I don't get what I want. And I am engaged in devoted behaviors. And then the fourth and final category is assurance and calm, displaying composure as, a, as opposed to fear. This is where I am neutral about opinions or positions. I am accepting. I am protecting but not enabling. I can offer true companionship. I can give him the sense that he is sufficient. I can offer praise for him and his actions. I can ensure his sense of freedom within his own life experience. I can offer safe shelter from the storms of life rather than being the one to create and sustain the storms. And finally, I can bring and experience joy. So when I keep these ideals at the forefront of my mind, on the tip of my tongue, and in the fullness of my heart, I know I am aligning with God's will. It tells me so on page 85 where it says, every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are the thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. So as I grow in my connection to God and stay awake, aware, and alert to the ideal set forth for all of my relationships, my emotional sobriety and effectiveness stays healthy and I can be of maximum usefulness to my fellows. One of the ways God has shown me to be of maximum usefulness is to focus on how to clearly communicate and why it's important. And what has resulted is that I have been able to turn a significant corner in my marriage relationship. And while I still do the 10-step process, I am now able to communicate more effectively from a gut level with my husband, and I'm able to do it directly with him instead of having to have a go-between person. So I end up doing my 10 steps with him. And the promises I'm seeing in this relationship continue to bloom. And this is after more than 30 plus years of marriage. God began to show me how I was not practicing these principles in this relationship because I was avoiding the uncomfortable conversations that were going to be necessary in order 
for any growth to happen in this relationship. We have now both committed to following what are called rules for gut level communication, and they stem directly from working the steps. I am able to more consistently and honestly recognize my emotions and be able to report them without being accusatory. This has opened up a horizon where I know it's much better for me to tell him how I really feel than to enter into the stickiness and discomfort of a phony relationship. This is how our friendship and human love are maturing, through absolute and mutual revelations. And it smashes that delusional thinking I've engaged in for a majority of my life, believing that he and everyone else is out to make my life miserable. So here are the rules, and there are five of them. One, gut level communication, emotional openness and honesty must never imply a judgment of the other. Two, emotions are not moral, good or bad. Three, feelings, emotions must be integrated with the intellect and the will. Four, in gut level communication, emotions must be reported. And five, with rare exceptions, emotions must be reported at the time they are being experienced. So working the steps in order as they're laid out in the big book and then submitting to the 10-step process positioned me to go to this next level, and it has had many benefits. The primary benefit is a real and authentic relationship. It results in more and more clearly defined sense of self-identity for me and for everybody I come in contact with instead of that sick enmeshment where both people continue to operate out of their character defects. On page 66 in the big book, it says, if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. Now, this statement doesn't mean that I'll never be angry, but I have to recognize when I am distorting the emotion. Now I say, I'm experiencing an emotion. I am not the emotion. The emotion is there to teach me and point me back to the relationship ideal, if I allow it. And then the second very important result of such communication as this is having understood myself because I've communicated myself, I now find the patterns of immaturity changing into patterns of maturity. I have changed. And here's an example. If I'm constantly reporting, I feel hurt by little, many, small, and inconsequential things, it'll become apparent to me that I'm hypersensitive and that I'm indulging in self-pity. The moment this becomes clear to me, really hits me, I will change. A third benefit is that it will evoke from others a response of honesty and openness, which is necessary if, we, if the relationship is to be interpersonal or mutual. If we want another to be open with us, we must begin by opening ourselves to them, by telling the other honestly and openly of our own feelings. So in summary, the dynamic is this. We put the food down to allow our emotions to arise so that they can be identified. We observe the patterns in our emotional reactions, report and judge them. And then having done these things, we instinctively and immediately make the necessary adjustments in the light of our own ideals and hopes for growth. We change and our relationships flourish. This is how my experience with step 10 has unfolded and allowed me to grow in understanding and effectiveness. It has also enabled me to realize what my faith tradition calls gifts and fruits of the spirit. The gifts are wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, piety, 
fear of the Lord, and fortitude. And the fruits result from the actions I take as I employ those gifts. And those fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, modesty, self-control, and abstinence. Thank you for allowing me to offer service. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Gina R., for sharing your experience with all of us this morning. We're going to now hear from panelist number two, Greg B. from California. Good morning, Greg. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? I hear you very well, Greg. Good, good. Thank you, Gina. Wow. That was like a dissertation. Um, I'm Greg B. from California. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. And, uh, you know, we're talking about today about Step 10 and about uh, some of the reasons why these things crop up, with the, the ego, the old behavior, the old self uh, cropped up. I'm, uh, I've am i been in the program for about 10 years in Overeaters Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous before that, uh, similar to my, my fellow uh, but being abstinent, being sober, you know, that's just not enough. It's just not enough. Um, kind of going back on the big book when, when Bill says, you know, in a grand, the, the wind stopped blowing, you know, and the family looks at you and says, so what? <laughs> so what? Uh, you know, you're still the same same person. You're still, as they say in the pro- other program, uh, a sober horse thief. So it's the work on the inside that's that's the real work and the difficulty uh, that I face on a daily basis. Uh, yes, yes, the food is down, uh, the alcohol is down, but it's this daily tenth step that continues to be the way that we watch and see uh, how we're doing, how we're doing in life. So, for me, the, one of the big ones is is fear and resentment. Fear and resentment—they're kind of intertwined and on a daily basis um, when the fear comes up the first thing I do is is the fundamental thing in the program is thy will not mine be done it's just something that you know I I have no idea what to do here Um, higher power I don't know what to do here thy will be done thy will be done and sometimes I just have to repeat that as I've had challenges in jobs, I've had challenges in relationships, I've had challenges with anything really. Um, it can be as simple as dealing with fellows in, in as we go about our lives, in the checkout line, at the airport, um, or more more likely in the home. Thy will be done. Is this what God would have me do? And yeah, just to check myself and ask myself that in real time, because if I write it down later, that's good too. If I write it down later and I look back on the day, and then I'm probably more likely to not do it again in the future when it comes up. But you have to act this stuff real time. So what I, that's, that's the fundamental thing, um, which is just surrender, letting go, and saying, you know, Greg, you're a smart guy, but you're not that smart. Maybe somebody else has some better ideas than you do. You know, are your ideas really superior? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said, period? And does it need to be said now? Um, 
you know that, that those are the things those are the things that the program the 10th step and recovery brings to me because in without a state of recovery my world is extremely small and i am everything is about me everything is about my desires my will or my benevolence towards other people and where i think i'm going to you know i'm i'm such a great guy that i'm just if everyone just did what i did and I was the puppet master, like it talks around about in page 63. If only the world, uh, if only the world did what I wanted it to do, it'd be a better world. That's again just another manifestation of self-will. So if I'm asking for Thy will to be done, not mine, it kind of takes that out, takes that out of play. So in terms of taking personal inventory and setting about mistakes. The hard part for me is, uh, you know, I, I can, I'm good at taking personal inventory, uh, I think. Um, and certainly, I'm not so good when other people are taking my inventory, <laughs> what I perceive about it. Uh, that's, that's a little bit different. And to listen to your partner, uh, which we're primarily talking about here, where the, the inventory gets more painful, or, or the boss, or, or whoever it is, sponsor, you know, to listen and say, you know, you may be right about that. Let me look at that. And maybe, and then think back, and then then going to them and saying, you know, I was wrong about this thing. I was wrong to kind of force my way and 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 want to do my plans, or wanting to do this task my way if it's work related. Um, and maybe let's let's look at a different way of doing things. What do you think? In, in the state of self-centeredness and in, in the state of disease, alcohol or not, food or not, what do you think was not something that normally came up in my vocabulary? You know, what do you, what do you think about this? Let's hear your ideas. And then to shut up and listen. Not to wait for them to talk and then come back with all of your great ideas. No. Tell me, what do you think? So that's, that's really part of the continuing to watch and continuing to, to live. Is to start building a collaboration with others, building collaboration with my higher power ultimately, and you know building a relationship with myself where I'm hey I'm part of this thing I'm part of the program I'm part of Vision for You I'm part of all these groups I'm not separate from I'm not a superstar and I'm not the worst person in the world I'm just a member of uh, I am a member of the group and. Let's collaborate. This collaborative spirit is, is, is new. It's something that we, we gain by recovery. So fear um, comes up, but if I'm collaborative and willing to learn and willing to listen and ask for God's will to be done, a lot of the fear gets taken away. And if not, I'll just continue to watch for it and, and ask for help. Hey, I'm afraid about this thing. Um, I need your help. And when someone calls on an outreach call or if I see someone in a meeting, uh, I don't need to bemoan my issues or problems or whatever, but I can also be authentic and say, yeah, I'm dealing with fear these days or, you know, lately I've had these things. What do you think? What, do you, what is your opinion? And that's part of having God remove those defects by asking others because I, I believe in a God and a power greater than myself that is a spiritual entity through the eyes of others, primarily people in program, because they'll tell me things I don't want to hear, they'll tell me things that they see and observe that I can't see myself. 
in terms of selfishness, that's you know the things they talk about in, in step ten: selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Selfishness that goes without saying. That that's the driving force. I, I can't say for all addicts, but certainly for me, um, it's it's just by nature. It's by nature, and so. I, I hate to say this, you know, I, I'm, I'm an adult and have been for a while, but I hate to say this. It's sometimes it's an effort to prepare my family's food before my own because, um, you know, don't you know it's about my abstinent food and I need to have my abstinent food, but, you know, I have a nine-year-old and uh, I have a wife who, who is now working, which is fantastic, but, gee, to think about, well, maybe I need to actually be a service and, and prepare their food first. Sounds really simple and stupid, but that's my selfish nature. I'm going to do my abstinent food now, and the rest of you can no. Maybe I can put my food or my dinner on hold for a minute and help the others. So that's just one little tiny example. Um, you know, dishonesty. Well, that that comes up a lot. There are there are many different manifestations of dishonesty, but um, you know what's important is to to find somebody to be accountable for and to talk to them about that in terms of food sponsorship and such and, and what my food plan and, and spacing that. But more importantly, you know, for me, how is your uh, action plan going? Um, what have you been working on on your action plan and to have an accountability partner in, in terms of career, in terms of program, and um, I even have accountability partners with music. I'm a songwriter and a singer, and, you know, I put that on hold sometimes for months at a time. And uh, having accountability partners there is good. So, you know, that's, that's part of the dishonesty is that... Um, you know, being dishonest with myself about about these things. Resentment, uh, number one offender. And what happens for me for resentment, it's sort of like fear. Your fear of not getting what you want. You're afraid of uh, that someone's going to have more than you. Or, you know, for me, it's you know fear of losing what I got. And then after the fear kicks in, then the resentment uh, follows right there. Because I resent people that are, have the things that I'm afraid that I'm not going to have. Or I resent other people for having things that I want. Or I resent people, you know, for any reason. Resentment can crop up at any moment. However, a uh, little trick that it talks about in the big book later on is about the praying for others. and Praying for the person that you have resentment about. And praying for all the things in their life to, to go the way that you wish you would have it for yourself. That little that little uh, tidbit uh, has been so helpful to me uh, in terms of work relationships. Um, I mentioned this before, but I had a boss that that uh, that fired me, and I resented him. And I would say that I don't resent him, and I'd say all the right stuff, but I really, in my gut, had this resentment towards this person. So. I would just pray for them to be successful in their career. I'd pray for them. And I didn't really mean it. Um, you know, I I would try to be sincere, but, uh, you know, but I just did it anyway. Yeah, I pray for them. I pray for them to have, you know, success in their career. And I would just say it. After a while, 
I, the resentment would go away. And they, they had no idea it was praying for them. But it's not about them. Resentment is about me, and it's about what actions am I going to take to be relieved of this, exact, this obsession, and, and how much effort I'm going to put into praying to God to help me. Please help me relieve me of this. What, how can I exert my efforts into other areas? Um, and, and, and then it just goes away. It went away. But if I dwell on the pain of the resentment and, and not having what I want and all that stuff, it's not going anywhere. So I have to pray for God's will to be done, and then I then take action on resentment. And in this case, just a simple little prayer is, is wonders uh, in terms of, of resentment. So on a daily basis, I, I have a list, a, a little checklist that I go through and write those down. And then I share them with someone, not always every day, but uh, you know, it's important that I keep a log of that. And for me lately, it's, it's been fear. It's come up a lot. And you know, what am I going to do? What actions am I taking? What are my three biggest fears to the day? Write them down. And then I try to work on some action towards those three fears. And, and for me, it's a lot around financial stuff. So did I contact, uh, you know, some of the debt collectors that have been calling me? And, and uh, you know, I take some action. I call them. Here's, here's what our workout plan is. And here's, here's what our plan is for this, this action on this thing. And then the second fear of, you know, I need to talk to my spouse about this particular area, this issue. I need to talk about it now. But if I address those fears before 9, 10 o'clock in the morning or take some action plan towards those fears, you know, the day is, is, is better. The day is better. So that's, that's a little bit of a, about how I work on the 10th step. And um, in summary, and not as, I'm sorry I'm a little disoriented this morning, but that's just my nature. But I, I'm just grateful to be here. And I love to hear about uh, how you all work the 10th step. And this group is a fantastic group to learn about the 10th step and growing in effectiveness because there's a lot of people that are really doing the deal here. So, again, thank you so much for having me share. And I'm going to listen to the rest of the uh, talk. Thanks. Thank you, Greg, for sharing your experience and doing the deal. Thank you very much. We're going to now hear from Melissa C., panelist number three. Good morning, Melissa. Hi. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. Um, good morning, everyone. It's Melissa C., a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And, um, oh, my gosh, you know, um, and I look back at the um, directions that I was given for this. Um, and I love, I love clear directions. So thank you, Leah. It was for me to give real life examples of how my ego regenerates. And when I revert to previous reactions, my old habits and, and how I've applied step 10 for proper alignment once again, and how does step 10 allow me to identify and have removed the character defects? How does step 10 keep me lined up with God's will? And, you know, so First, I have to think, like, well, what is God's will, you know? Um, and God's will is, from, you know, to live in the world of the Spirit, for me to live in the world of the Spirit, to grow in effectiveness and understanding. And, you know, when I compare that to Melissa's will, which is my ego, it's to live in the world of Melissa. You know, it's to have my way, to be understood, to have things be effective for me, 
to get more, to get better, you know, to get what I want. And, um, you know, so in this growing and understanding and effectiveness, um, you know, I love, I was, someone had shared a quote about growth, you know, that growth, um, well, a comfort zone is like a really nice place, but nothing grows there. So I'm not growing when I'm comfortable. And, you know, a dear friend has said to me, this isn't get comfortable anonymous. Um, and uh, so when I'm uncomfortable, it, yeah, it means I'm growing. It means things are happening for me. Um, and, you know, the big book says um, that we've got to continue to take inventory and set things right as I go along. So, you know, at this point, um, I've been, I've been um, recovered. It's five years. And, I, I mean, I, that's just mind-boggling. Um, and, and I've made many amends, and I've found um, that, you know, I have entered the world of the spirit. And so what does that even mean? You know, for me it means that I've changed, that, um, that, it, that it's not my world anymore. And, and now I need to know, well, how do I stay in this new world? And, um, you know, I have a part. That's how I stay in this new world. I have a job my charge, my function, it's like I'm like a worker bee. My, my, my one direction is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And, you know, understanding um, is not more self-understanding. It's not to grow in more understanding of Melissa, you know, and it's not to grow in um, having others be understanding towards me. You know, my eye has to be on growing to understand others more so that I can be helpful. Like, that's my purpose. It's not just to figure people out like they're a puzzle so I can feel superior, but it's so that I can be of use. And um, this is a change, you know, this is a huge change. And, and one of the things that um, that was in the directions from Leia was, you know, made me think about maturity, you know, that this is about emotional maturity. And, um for someone that was always scrambling for attention, who um, who always wanted to be um, thought of as, a, as an adult, as a grown-up, I'm the youngest of five kids. So in my family, um, I'm 50 years old, and my mother still calls me the baby. Um, and, and I've been a baby. You know, I, I think food kept me like a child. And so this is a tall order, you know, to move from emotional immaturity to maturity. And and it's not an overnight matter, but it continues for my lifetime, and I'm never done growing. So just as I reach this point where I feel like I've got this effectiveness thing down, where I feel like, hey, I'm a grown-up and I understand people, um, you know, I would be like, you know, family, um, hello, don't you know that uh, I'm living in the world of the spirit? Where are all you people? Get get in my world right now. Um, yeah, that's really, that's my immaturity rearing its head. And, you know, and then things will go along and I'll feel nice and calm and then boom, you know, there comes the storm. And, um, yeah, if you're not in the midst of the storm, no worry, because one is on its way. And, you know, so the directions were to give real-life examples. And I just kind of want to start off by saying when I give the examples, you know, in the book it says, like, we hope our stories are not 
I don't, I'm rephrasing it, but that they're not told in bad, that they're not thought of that we're saying these in bad taste. So I'm not telling this story, you know, my particular stories to elicit self-pity, you know, pity from other people, because um, that's sort of how I used to tell my story. I would want, um, like, an excuse, a free pass. Let me tell you how bad things are for me so that you can excuse all my poor behavior from here on out. Um, or I would tell a story so that I could feel superior and really good, you know. And, and so I'm going to give two examples, and one of which is, like, um, pretty, like, of a doozy. It's heavy-duty, but step 10 works for that. And then I'm going to show one that's pretty mundane. And you know what? The step 10 process works for that, too. So I'm hoping that that um, can be helpful to many people because we have big events and then we have the minor, you know, pebble in the shoe events. Um, so, you know, like a, a big issue that has occurred in my life that has been a huge opportunity for my emotional growth and maturity um, has been my children's mental health issues. And um, my daughter at the end of this summer suffered a terrible um, emotional mental um, issue where she needed to be hospitalized. She had to go to a psychiatric hospital for three weeks. And, yeah, this was the storm. Um, and I needed this 12 steps. I needed a plan to get me through the storm, you know, because I used to go to the food. You know, if the dog had an accident on the rug, it was a good reason to eat. Well, that's not living in the world of the spirit anymore. So there is no reason in my world that I can return to the food. Um, because if I go back to eating, I'll commit, it'll kill me. It's to commit suicide. Um, and so, yeah, in, in this event, I actually had to watch for my selfishness, you know, and, and how do I define selfishness in terms of my daughter having a mental health crisis? Um, no, it wasn't selfish for me to pack up my food the morning that I was taking her to the hospital. That's not selfish. That, that's, like, that's, about, that's like saying it was selfish for me to brush my teeth. Those are just part of how I can operate in the world. That was how I could remain clear-headed to care for her. And thank God I did it that on autopilot. You know, just like I put on my bra and underwear. I didn't really have to think about it, just did it. But what was selfish? Um, you know, is it selfish to not want my kid, you know, to be sick? Is it selfish, you know, to when you're upset that a loved one dies? You know, no. You know, of course, we're allowed to grieve a loss, like loss of life and loss of dreams. Um, yeah, we're allowed to feel sadness. But as an addict, it's essential that I don't allow my grief to shift into the dangerous place of self-pity. You know, that would be selfish. So my selfishness at this time um, is when life is not going my way, I can replace this by recognizing that I can only see what's right in front of me. I do not know what's behind the door, and that's the truth. So my vision of how life should be, um, it's interesting, but it's not accurate. You know, life has another plan. Um, and my dishonesty, where was I dishonest here? Well, these are the lies that I tell myself, my self-deception. Not facing the truth, that's a lie. Hiding holding stubbornly to inaccurate beliefs. 
So where my daughter was concerned, yeah, I didn't face the truth that she was sick and needed help. It took me a while, you know. Um, And I didn't tell any of my siblings or my nieces or my nephews or my friends or my colleagues what was going on with her. I did share with some of my fellows here, but I didn't tell people in my world. And I falsely believed, you know, I, I, I lived in a little bit of a lie. I falsely believed that this was just teenage laziness and rebellion and yeah, some of that, yeah, some of that's true because she's she's just about eighteen, and that's accurate. But um, but part of the dishonesty was I had to look that, you know, a highly productive kid with a circle of friends begins to trash every relationship, as not sleeping for weeks, loves her summer job, to then telling me that her boss is out to get her, runs off in the middle of the night. At some point, you have to recognize that to not face the truth is being dishonest. And and hiding it from people that love us, that could help us, and I say us, meaning my son, my husband, my son, my daughter, because my ego was so big, I was embarrassed. That's dishonesty, and it's selfish. You know, so my resentment, being pissed off, you know, refeeling. You you know it when you're in it. You know when you're resentful. It doesn't take much, you know. First, like, I had to get over the feeling that I don't want this. Like, I would say over and over again, I don't want this. This isn't what I want. This isn't what I want. And that's immature, you know. Um, I would um, look at what other people had, and I would feel that resentment. I would look at my nieces who were doing well, my neighbors, their kids are doing well. I would look at posts on Facebook, bad place for me when I'm feeling when I'm feeling bad. And everyone's kids, you know, are cheerleaders and they're functioning and mine is in the hospital. And yeah, was I resentful? I was, you know. And then fear, tons of fear, fearing the future, my kids' future, my future afraid what this was going to mean for me. And when I'm in that state, I cling to catastrophic thinking. I am living not in the moment where my daughter was actually safe, everybody was okay, but I'm living 10 years down the road. And and my picture at that moment, it's never good. You know, so this was just one example, and, and it's a big, heavy one, right? But I have another example and it's less of a doozy, and it's actually more um, dangerous for someone like me um, because it seems inconsequential, and those are the ones that I could ignore. Those are like the things, I, I think it's like that's when you've got a sore and you don't treat it, and you just, um, you never put any antibiotic on it, you don't do anything to it, you just slap a Band-Aid on it, or you pretend it doesn't exist, and you don't get any treatment for it. And it and it festers and festers and festers. I think sometimes those are worse than the big gaping wound that you know I need treatment for. So, you know, my other example is this ongoing issue I have with a coworker. Um, and we've worked together for 20 years, and she's not nice to me. <laughs> and I feel like a baby when I say that. Um, and it is, there's an immaturity here, you know. So what's my selfishness? I want my coworker to like me. I want her to treat me nicer. I want to have a nice workplace where I can be understood, valued, um, yeah, and probably adored even. You know, that's my ego. 
my ego, my ego, me, 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 um, my dishonesty here, um, the lie I tell myself is that if this person liked me, then I would be more comfortable. Um, another lie that I tell myself is she doesn't understand me. She's not listening to me. You know, and the truth is um, my ease and comfort can't come from approval of others. And my truth is also that my job, if I'm going to live in the world of the spirit, is that I need to be more understanding. I need to understand her. I need to listen to her. Um, my resentment, you know, revisiting all the things this particular person does and says, watching her facial expressions, looking at her body language. And, and I'm like back to junior high thinking. I'm right back in that lunchroom thinking about the girl that doesn't like me, you know. Um, my fear is she's talking about me. Oh, my God, is that selfish. I mean, like, you know, I'm a 50-year-old woman. What makes me think that this other woman is even thinking two seconds about me and talking about me? She might be, but chances are she's not, you know. And, um, and my other fear is that she's going to make my job unbearable. And, you know, um, news alert, my job is not about having my colleagues like me. My job is about working with kids and doing service. So um, my fear really is self-centered there. You know, so would it be possible that both of these examples, like one, this heavy-duty issue with my daughter and this one with my work issue, are both treatable? Um, well, the good news is they are, you know, and the treatment happily is the same. You know, the reality is for an addict like me, um, I need to work on this recovery daily. Um, I need the same treatment plan. I need to work with other people, you know, and I needed to make amends. Like, that's what we're told to do. What kind of amends do I need to make? Well, in a situation with my daughter, yeah, I had to make amends. First, I have to amend my parenting. I have to recognize that I'm parenting someone who's sick. And if my daughter had a heart condition, I would recognize that she might need a different course of treatment than someone who had a healthy heart. Well, her brain is another organ, so I need to treat I need to treat that without judgment. No judgment here. I need to parent her a little bit differently and um and I need to amend my behavior of withholding information from the relatives who could support me. I needed to tell people I was sorry that I didn't tell them what was going on because their feelings were hurt. They love us, they love my daughter um and they weren't there to judge me. No one was, you know, you know, maybe they were, but it doesn't matter. That can't be in the way if they were judging my parenting. Um, my amends was to apologize to my daughter as well for not taking seriously how she was feeling, what she was going through. You know, and with my coworker, a huge amend was I needed to refrain from gossip. Um, for me, gossip... You know, it's like putting my hand in a bag of potato chips. It starts out just like a little bite, a little taste, and soon I'm, like, consuming the whole bag. Soon all I'm thinking about 
and talking about is this colleague, this coworker. You know, my other amend is that um, I need prayer. I need to ask God to help me seek to be more understanding and to not seek to be understood. I say the sick man's prayer for my colleague daily. And I actually don't say the sick man's prayer. I've, a friend has taught me to say um, that my friend, that the person I'm praying for is spiritually developing, like me. Because if I can picture my colleague as spiritually developing, I don't feel superior to her. And I don't pity her like she's this poor sick person. But I recognize that she's growing and developing just like me. And it helps me kind of um, see her with a more kinder light. You know, and, and so when I think about emotional maturity that has occurred for me from this work, um, I can compare how I used to react to my difficulties. You know, today when I call a, a, a fellow to help me see my truth with these things, um, I don't call them and say, let me tell you what my coworker did today or let me tell you all about what's going on with my kid today. You know, um, because when these things crop up means these things crop up. The things meaning my selfishness, my dishonesty, my resentment and fear. Not when she crops up. Not when life crops up. You know, so my conversations with fellows have to be, and thankfully they are, really directed into the only thing that can change here, which is me, which is my part. And the people that I share with that help me, and there are so many of you, all of you, you point me right back to God, you know, and then here's the winning piece. Here's the thing that really makes this, um, all of this pain, all of this angst, be for my greater good is when I'm praying, I'm, I'm drawing closer to God. I'm making that conscious contact, and then I'm resolutely turning my attention to someone I can help. And that's the icing on the cake. That's the bright spot. That's what transforms my selfishness into something good, you know, because I have a code today, love and tolerance. That's the code. I love that I have a code. You know, a code is a set of laws and rules, a standard to live by. A mature person has, has a code, you know, and my standard is love and tolerance. When I think about tolerance, you know, it means that I'm unaffected by the circumstances, that I am able to endure the things and the people that once rocked my world. You know, tolerance is not like, ugh, I'm going to tolerate this. I think about it more like if you've built up a tolerance to a drug or a medication. It means that it's not creating a crazy effect or, or an effect inside you anymore. And so that's, that's what this program has done for me that I can endure things, you know, with love. You know, my answer now is it, it's, it's always love. It's, it's so simplistic, but it's not easy. You know, it was easier to live in righteous anger. It was easier to live in self-pity. But as an addict, I don't have that dubious luxury. 
you know, and I just, I know I'm like out of time, but I have to say that the promises, those 10-step promises are key to cease fighting anything or anyone, my circumstances, the food, because now sanities has returned. I'm not interested in food. When I'm tempted, I recoil from it. I feel sane. And this has happened automatically. It's, I have a new attitude. And it's given without any effort. You know, it just comes. This is the miracle. I'm not fighting. I feel neutral. I'm safe and protected. The problem has been removed. It doesn't exist. And I don't feel cocky. And I'm not afraid. But I react this way so long as I stay in fit spiritual condition. And now I don't need to rely on willpower to stay away from the food. But I need to use willpower to exercise my spiritual maintenance. We are told that I can exercise my willpower all I want along the lines of maintaining my spiritual fitness. And, you know, the wonderful thing is, is that as I worked on the maintenance of my spiritual condition, I have life, and life keeps giving me life, and I get an opportunity to grow. And um, thank God for another opportunity to grow. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much, Melissa C., for sharing those examples and your experience with all of us. The share ID for today's presentation, 12,466, that's 12466. The contact information for Gina R., Greg B., and Melissa C. will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question-answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 and offering your first name and first letter of your last name as well. This is Katie G. from Boston. So who has a question this morning? Jackie H. from Colorado. Jackie, got you. Brandy K. Katie G. from Boston. Katie G. Cindy D. Cindy D. Lydia T. Lydia T. This is Rachel from Israel. Rachel, got you. Hello. Hello, Beverly R. Beverly R. Wendy B. Wendy B. Yvonne D. H. Yolanda. Yvonne D.H. Oh, it's, okay. No, Yolanda. Yvonne D.H. Okay, that's that's an ample group for sure. Everybody, please mute except for Jackie H. And please address if there's a specific panelist you'd like to hear from, Gina R., Greg B., and Melissa C., please, please uh, make that clear. Thank you. Good morning, Jackie H., Recovered in Colorado. Thank you so much, all three of you. Um, my question is for Gina. Gina, your um, share, touch, moved, and inspired me for sure. It was beautiful. Um, I would like for you, could you address a little bit more, you, you mentioned the rules for gut-level communication. Um, is that, can you uh, talk a little bit more about that? Thank you so much. <clears throat> 
Hi, Jackie. Um, yes, that is um, actually an outside resource, and I can tell you that it was given to my husband in 1985 when he went through um, 30-day inpatient treatment for his alcoholism. And when he left, we did family aftercare, and they gave us um, these these guidelines or these rules. And um, I would say for probably the first few years, um, we were able to do it. Um, but I was 23 at the time, and I I was not mature. I did not have you know, I think I needed to go through everything I needed to go through in order to be where I am today, where I'm able to fully embrace and understand and appreciate not only these steps, but other things that come and that we can fully receive as a result of these. So um, I do have them, and I am happy to share them with anyone who's interested. Um, so feel free to um, text me um, um, later. I'll be happy to do that. And I'm also, oh, thank you, thank I you. love, I love helping people um, apply not only, you know, really getting into the 10th step and especially if you're finding that you're doing the same um, resentments or fears over and over and over. What I realized for myself was God was saying, look, you've asked me for help with this. I've given you the help. You need to just employ it. And that was mm -hmm. the piece I was missing. And I was just, um, you know, kind of how I was with the food. I was just in that, that gerbil cage, you know, running, running, running. And so I had to open myself to a shift. And it happened for me. And, and I've seen it happen with others as I've been able to share my experience, strength, and hope with them. Awesome. I will contact you for sure. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, all my of you. My pleasure. Thank you, Jackie H., for the question. Franny K. Star one to unmute, Franny. Good morning to everyone, and many thanks uh, for being on the line. I related to everyone. Um, gay, uh, hitting a blank. Gina, your um, marriage uh, rules, not rules, guidelines were amazing. My husband was listening um, as I was. Um, oh, my. The gentleman, thank you for yours. And Melissa, uh the parenting question about the step 10 bothering um first of all i'm sorry for your daughter and it sounds like you're doing the next right thing but i have a my middle son is 26 and he is fine only calling us once a um month and he lives five minutes around the corner my husband's mother passed away this past monday and uh you know it was expected so that part was fine but I had to. I called him and said, "I'm sure your dad would love to hear from you." And this passive aggressive, uh, asking him what to do. And I was very resentful um, Wednesday when I asked him if he was able to stop by, and he said, "No." But anyway, children's resentment. My, so my question is, resentment against my own children and not being aware of it on the fly. It it takes. Um, so much for me to recognize that. Thank you so much. Franny, did you have a specific question you'd like to direct to one of our panelists? Is this for yes. Melissa? Yes. So please. Yes. The question is for Melissa mm -hmm. how, how she has been able to develop that. Um, 
awareness because mine is still a little bit fuzzy until it gets me. Okay, thank you. Melissa C? Hi. Um, Yeah, thank you. Um, So, you know, I'm thinking, um, I think the awareness, I mean, if if we're really honest with ourselves, um, sometimes in the moment, like, I'm I'm numb, and I think it's... um, you know, like I'm, I'm in the moment and I have to function. I've got to just do it. And then, you know, a little bit later it's like, oh, you know, I'm feeling something. Um, and it's like that pebble in the shoe. You, you can feel it. It hurts. It feels uncomfortable. I, I think the more we do this work, um, the more um, aware I've become. You know, and, and I think this is where it's really important to have – a community of, of recovered people that we can share our truth with. I, I know for myself, um, if something keeps appearing on my 11th step, on my nightly review, um, and, and I'm, like, writing the same things over and over again, and I'm like, wait, did, I don't know that I address this during the day. Why is this coming up for me at night? That, that was sort of how some of the awareness is come um and the other thing is through prayer and meditation you know that's where we remain you know get conscious contact with god and some of those truths come out and in regards to you know my my kids my daughter doing things that um i don't like or not you know i think about her relationship with with her dad and and um they have their very own relationship that has nothing to do with me um, and if I want to orchestrate it, that is definitely selfishness. Um, you know, thank you. I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Franny K, for the question. Katie G, your turn. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, panel. This <clears throat> this is Katie G. Thanks so much. What a beautiful panel. Thanks for your service. Um, Two questions. One of them has been addressed initially, um, and this would be directed at uh, Melissa and uh, and Gina because you both talked about it. Number one, repeat offenses on step 10 and um, any other strategies that you've used. And number two, how to start feeling feelings. And what I mean by that is, you know, I get a step 10, I have a fear. I'm like, okay, this has to go away. I'm done. And then I'm throwing myself into helping others. And the problem is the feeling isn't being processed. And I don't know, as a recovered compulsive overeater, I still don't seem to know how to how to deal with feelings. So, um, yeah, I, I just, Melissa, you started to touch on it. If you could expand any more about things that might help you so that, um, so that the resentment, the anger, doesn't continue to manifest things. Hi, thank you, Katie. Um, yeah, so for for the things that keep coming up for me, um, I, I have to put it in prayer. And, you know, like a, a practice that I've been doing is increasing my prayer life, changing my prayers, changing my meditation. Um, you know, I had this, like, thought one day, like I, I was on the computer on the phone, actually, and I was like, let me Google a prayer for a parent of a depressed teen, and holy Christ, (laughs) there's prayers for parents of depressed kids, and I took it, and I kind of reworded it, and that gave me some, some, 
comfort. You know, it's it really is the work of the prayer. It's um, and then I had to look at some of my relationship, my ideals. You know, like how am I behaving in agreement with some of these ideals? Because when I'm not, I feel the the those feelings even more so. You know, and and if I can change my behavior that they match my ideals, um, then my circumstances have the chance of changing. And the other thing is, you know, that idea of tolerance, sometimes it's tolerating discomfort. You know, as an addict, I don't want to feel anything unpleasant. And, um, like, yeah, newsflash, (laughs) I'm a human being. I'm going to feel unpleasant. I'm going to feel some things I don't like, and in those moments, again, I can turn to prayer and sit quietly and and say to God, you know, thank you, God, I know you're here with me in my discomfort, I trust that you'll get me through any pain that I'm feeling, um, and and let it be useful, you know, um, and then trusting that it will be lifted. Thank you, I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Melissa. And Gina R., did you also want to respond? I believe uh, Katie asked you yeah, as well. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, hi, Katie. It's so good, nice to hear um, your voice this morning. Um, yeah, this, again, is something that has really unfolded for me, um, you know, as a result of working these steps. and. The other thing that's happened for me is really understanding um, a very deep-seated core belief I have held all of my life, which I don't anymore, but it, it has been transformed, and that that is seeing myself as a victim. And so once I understood that I'm a free agent, able to choose the thoughts that I believe, then I could understand that my thoughts around these emotions were going to give that emotion energy. So just like I talked about, if I, when I continue to focus on the character defect, and like I'm talking about it, I'm thinking about it, I'm what, whatever, that's what's growing. And the same thing happens with these emotions. Now, I believe my higher power, God, gifts me with emotions. What I do with my distorted thinking or my dis-ease thinking is – I turn that emotion into something that it was never intended to be. So, for example, when I am fearful, fear is an instinct that I have to have. We all have to have it. If we don't have a fear instinct, we are going to go through life not recognizing true and real danger. But what my dis-ease has um, turned it into, but now it's more calibrated toward appropriateness. Um, so. I talk to the fear sometimes, and I do it with the help of God, and I'll say, all right, you're here again. What are you trying to teach me that I haven't gotten yet? And when I would frame it that way, God would start just nudging some of that sludge that Leah referred to that's still in my spiritual system going, this is what's still keeping you stuck. You're still really worried about the future. You're still um, concerned that someone else, you know, I love how Melissa talked about it, has something different than you. And you think just because they have that or whatever that you're not okay. So I 
I don't resist my emotions anymore. I used to resist them. And when we talk about, you know, God, please remove this fear, I don't think the fear instinct is being removed. What I think is being removed is my warping of it, my perverting it. I don't ever want the fear instinct to be removed because I need it. I need to know when I'm truly in danger or when I'm truly, um, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't know if that helps. Feel free to check in with me later if you want more. That's what I've got. I pass. Thank you. Thanks, Katie G., for the question. And Cindy D., let me know that her question's already been asked. So we'll move on to Lydia T. Lydia, your question, please. Star one. Hi, this is... Hi, this is Lydia um, from Marquette, Michigan, recovering. Um, I was part of my question was answered from Gina. Um, if her husband was in a twelve-step program, and is this something she does with him on a daily basis? Do you sit down every day, like you know, maybe talk through what you do? Do you set aside like every morning you're gonna you're gonna talk as things arise, or every night before you go to bed? And um, kind of just how did that evolve and that's my question okay uh, I'm sorry what was your name again Franny? Lydia Lydia oh, Lydia okay yeah. thank you Lydia um, well it it's it more it, it changes it morphs all the time and I can tell you the um, I would say six months ago how it looked was me being um, super frustrated that the 10-step processes I was continuing to do with my fellows really wasn't resolving the issue. And I would continue to just um, act selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and afraid around him. And it was uh, kind of a, a pressure cooker situation where I, once I understood what my part of it was and that I needed to actually engage with him in a different way, and I wish I could tell you that it was beautiful, you know, and there were like harps playing and angels wafting around us and all that kind of thing. No, it was a, a knockdown, drag out, you know, metaphorically speaking, kind of fight. Um, but we had to get to this place where we really understood that um, we needed to do this. So that's what started it. And then we did agree that um, as things came up, we would do our best to report them. So that was like about a three-month period. And then now what we've settled into is not necessarily focusing so much on um, step work, but we um, are reading our, our faith literature together, and we're using that as a springboard to talk about um, what is actually going on with us. And so it's not completely program related, you know, like program literature or that kind of thing. But it's just a, a commitment to each other that we're going to do our best to try to do this. And um, I don't know what it'll look like in a month. Um, I don't have to. All I know is that today, this is the commitment we made to each other. We're going to do our best to keep it. And we're going to keep moving forward. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Lydia T. Raquel E. Time for your question. Hello. Do you hear me? Yeah, I do. It's a little faint. If you could speak up, Raquel. Uh, yes. Yes. 
So um, I really want to thank, just to thank all three of you. It's more than I can like really process in a short, I'll need to listen again and again and talk to people, all wonderful, wonderful things. I wish I would have heard all this when I was still married. Uh, at least one of the marriages it applied to very much. I do tend to get married every once in a while. But right now, all I have to get along with is with my siblings. And there are some very important points here. It's like God sent you guys, all three of you. When are you coming for dinner? Abstinent, wonderful dinner. But we're far, but we're so close in heart. I'm going to listen again and write the numbers down and talk with every one of you, hopefully, uh, personally. Thank you so much, Leah, for your service and everybody for your service. Um, I do get along with my cat pretty well. So thus far, this is a success. But step 10, I'm at a whole new phase in my life and graduating into more, into, into really where the rubber hits the road, as you guys say. And you've been very helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Raquel. Sounds like a good plan. Okay, Beverly R., your question, please. Hello, I'm just turning the pages. Just bear with me to, to reach to the question. Bear with me just one moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I remember it. I can start telling you before I look at it. Um, how I was, wanted to ask Melissa C. And I think it, this wasn't the exact word in my question, but what it means is how did you get to a place of neutrality with the food? You said that... Um, you reached the point where the food was no longer calling to you, that you no longer chose to eat because for whatever reason, for whatever feeling situation coming up, and and you said that, that, that you no longer turned to food. How did you get to that point? I'm just interested in, in that process, if if you can talk about it. Please. Hi, thank you, Beverly. That's, that's thank right. You. That's, why, that's why we're here. <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I came to Overeaters Anonymous, because I couldn't even imagine. What do you mean that I have a problem and I don't turn to food? Um, and I think my answer is really um, simple. Entire abstinence to start with and working the 12 steps. You know, I... I it happened for me. It happened to me, not by me. Um, as I took action after action, you know, I noticed after I gave my inventory, it was like I didn't really want it. Food suddenly didn't seem, you know, like something I needed or wanted anymore. Um, and then as I made my amends, it was like it disappeared even more, that desire. And, you know, any time that the weird thought crosses my mind to eat something alcoholically or to eat something extra, it really is because I am disturbed. It is because I'm not looking at something. And I think what what keeps that from happening um, is that I am willing to look at everything. You know, I'm willing to look at uh, the inconsequential you know, um, issue with a colleague, you know, that what would seem so silly and, 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 and that I have the humility. I think that's really what removes the desire to eat. When we 
are completely humble um, and that even the things that we think are beneath us to feel, I'm willing to admit, nope, I'm actually having a human feeling about this and I need some help from my fellows and I need some help from God. Um, and when I do those things, yeah, the food is just, it's just nutrition. It's nothing other than that. Thank you. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Beverly R. Wendy B., your turn. Hi, this is Wendy B. in Arizona. And my question is for um, Gina. And I was just wondering if um, if you wouldn't mind sharing one of your 10 steps, like what it actually looks like. Um, thank you. Gina R. Yes. Oh, yeah, sorry. My, I, was, I got, mm-hmm. got remuted. Um, thank you, Wendy. Um, well, I I could share one along the lines of my husband. Um, he is, I get resentful when he doesn't think as quickly as I think he should think. And because I'm already down the road and that affects um, several things in me. Um, it affects my self-esteem. It affects my ambition. Um, it affects my sex relations with him. Um, and where I'm being um, selfish in that is I'm wanting him to be something that he's not. Um, my self-seeking is only, you know, looking for my own um, ease and comfort in the relationship and not understanding that um, he's his own person. You know, he he's not me. Uh, my dishonesty is thinking that, that I know what's right, you know, and my delusional thinking is, um, and this is really what has broken through for me with this whole thing is that he has to change in order for me to feel okay. Um, and then my fear is um, it, that there is something like super wrong with him. It's not just that he can't think as quickly as me or, um, but sometimes I really worry about, you know, maybe Alzheimer's or um, maybe mental illness or something like that. So, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to start employing what I heard Melissa say, um, instead of, you know, referring to the sick man's prayer, I love, you know, he is still developing spiritually. And so I would pray for that. And, um, I would ask God to show me, you know, what do I need to be in this situation? And that again is the crux of what has blown open for me with this whole thing is what, how God would have me be, is that relationship ideal that I just glided over in the four step. Um, I didn't pay enough attention to it. And I don't re- resent that that happened the way it did now because I understand now I needed to have those very tough, challenging, frustrating experiences with this 10-step process because I don't think I would appreciate that ideal as much as I do now. So I hope that helps and let me know. Thanks, Wendy B. Yvonne, D.H., your turn for a question. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for the, uh, for sharing and for asking questions. My question goes to the panelists to just um, answer the question to the step 10. Um, yeah. 
it's about my uh, my relationship with my partner. Um, I often um, he doesn't he doesn't react the way I want him to react. Um, if I ask him a question or something like that on on the WhatsApp or so, I don't get any answer, and I'm immediately in this. Um, I I I did a, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Shouldn't have asked. Shouldn't have asked. So we are both adult child, children of alcoholic families and dysfunctional families. And so I know uh, and I heard love and tolerance is our code. And I've, I heard the ten step is is a solution. But I still have the idea that I'm doing that that I'm some, missing something. And that I should do something better. So um, I don't know if I'm clear. Uh, but this is my question: what uh, What else is there to do, or is it only the ten step? And is it only love and tolerance is our code? And um, uh, did I do something wrong? I can't ask him. I can't ask him because it would be would not be good. And I don't want to be selfish anymore. I don't want to be resentful. I don't want to be feel guilty. And so. What is there to do? Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, let's so, hear from all three. Go ahead, Gina. Let's start with you. Okay, yeah. So for me, that was the exact place I was in. And what I realized was I was still focused on wanting to arrange how my husband responded to me. And i that's when I got pointed back to what it talks about in um, step four, the relationship ideal. So when I really prayed about that and I sat with it and I listened, and this this wasn't an, this was not an overnight matter. It took a while for this to to come to me, but that's when I received what my ideal looks like in this relationship, and it brings the focus right back on me and off of him. And so, wouldn't you know it, when I clarified what that ideal looked like. And then I had very clear ways of what, how showing up in the relationship would look. And then that's what I would practice. And again, it's no different than a food plan. And that's why I like making that distinction. You know, before I was um, on a food plan and, you know, doing certain things with the way I eat, um, it was all over the place. I didn't have any guardrails. I didn't have any um, guidelines to help me. So that's what the relationship ideal will help you with. So when something is bothering you, you go back to that ideal and you look at, all right, this is how I, how God wants me to show up in this relationship. So that's as simple as I can make it, and I pass. Thanks, Gina. Greg B., what do you do when people don't behave the way you wish them to? Yeah. Can you hear me okay? I hear you right now. Okay, sorry about that. Yes, well, gee, um, usually I try to get them to behave the way I want them to, and then uh, uh, I realize it's futile, and I kind of laugh and, and uh, laugh at myself, and I just let it go. Uh, you know, just let it go and just where can I be helpful? Like my fellows, when I was – having trouble with abstinence and I would call after a relapse and I would call my fellows in this program and they would just kind of a little bit of frustration, but also under, under, under the uh, guidance of the steps would just say, how can I be helpful? What's going on with you and tell me how I can be helpful. 
if I have a spirit of helpfulness, um, not as a superiority, as my friend said from New York, but um, truly wanting to be helpful to the other person, then it, it then the controlling thing kind of goes away. So that's a quick answer. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Greg and Melissa C. If that ever happens to you, how do you handle that? Yeah, hi. I'm <laughs> laughing because um, you mean like when people are being people, <laughs> when they're not living in the world of Melissa. Exactly. That, that is that is just, that is life. And I think for myself, um, I really, God gave me a sense of humor. Thank you, God. And I can, I can employ my sense of humor. Um, I think it is a God-given gift that I have the ability to laugh at myself, not in a cruel way. But when I start getting twisted over people not doing what I want to do, um, I, I, I lovingly remind myself that um, I don't even know how much food to put in my body. Like that's what makes me think I know how other people should be behaving in the world when I'm a 50-year-old woman who has to write my food down and put it on a kitchen scale because that that piece inside me is so broken. Um, and that sort of gives me a little humility to say, maybe I don't know what's best for these other people. And, and to remind myself that I am living in the world of the spirit, and the world of the spirit is what's ultimately in control. And then I meet those people with love, you know, to, to, and that's a spiritual practice. It's not easy to love the people that are pissing us off. Um, but I believe that's where God is really found. Thank you. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Yvonne, D.H., for your question. And this will be our final invitation. We can take a few more before we wrap up this morning. Anyone else with questions on their minds? For our Ginger panel? C. Ginger C. Margaret D. Margaret D. Kathleen O. Kathleen O. Leah S. And Leah S. Excellent. Tara K. I didn't catch that last one. Tara K. Tara K. Okay, you'll be our final question for today. Ginger C., everybody else, please mute. Thank you. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for your service this morning. And wow, panel, unbelievable message of depth and weight. So thank you so much for your beautiful recovery this morning. And um, this can go out to any panelists, but personally for me with my 10-step experience, and someone had mentioned this prior, where you're repeating. And if I can't see my BS, you know, a price has to be paid. And sometimes that's a painful price because to see the truth, it's going to probably hurt me before it sets me free. But we do this work because we lack power and we got to get back to God. So I'm just curious your different experiences around 10 steps. Because for me personally, when I get hooked in a certain manner, it's usually a deep-seated lie. And I cannot see the truth. I cannot see me and my part. I usually go and do like a spiritual soul surgery. It's it's digging and it's deep and it is painful. But the gift every time is I'm completely released from it and I'm completely turned back 180 to God. And, um, and I'm really not repeating that. And, and I know it's a process. It's an onion peeling and we, 
as we grow in effectiveness, more gets revealed in God's timing, perfect timing. But I'm just curious your differences with some of your 10-step work around that. Just I think quick- Adina, I'll chime in. I'll, I'll chime in. And, mm-hmm. and I will say yes. And I guess the bottom line for me is the 10-step process has been a portal through which and a platform where I'm actually open for that, what you call ginger soul surgery. And that's where some of these ideas and these revelations really have happened for me. Um, and, you know, the book is clear that, you know, outside help, other resources, you know, leaning on our faith traditions, these sorts of things, these are, these are good things. So, you know, the 10 step is critical, but it's, it may not be, um, you know, the only thing that somebody needs in order to get not just a sense of relief, but moving and moving and gliding through their life in a way where they truly are free. And that's been my experience. Thanks, Gina. Mm-hmm. Any other panelists want to comment, respond? Yeah, it's Melissa. Say mm-hmm. thanks, Ginger. Um, you know, one of the things that has helped me um, is to increase um, the people that I speak with because, um, you know, God really, I feel God communicates to me through my fellows. And the more I, like, broaden that circle and seek spiritual, you know, um, suggestions from other people, um, more truth gets revealed to me. You know, it's like any time somebody new that I've never spoken with before asks me if I would take their 10-step, um, I'm like, wow, I'm learning something more about me. And I think I think that's it. I think, um, you know, for <laughs> I remember, like, when I first called, started calling in, and I was like, is this, like, a secret click? Like, how do I get in with the, with the in people? Like, that was, like, in my little immature thinking, you know, because I always wanted to be with, like, where the cool people were, where the in people are. And, like, guess what? There's thousands of us cool in people here who are so broken. And I can learn from everybody. Um, and that's really what's, what's helped me with my 10 steps, that I'll share something with someone or they'll share something with me, and then they come back with something that just blows my mind and takes me to the next level. Um, thank you. Um, with that, I'll pass. And thank you, Melissa. Okay, thank you for the question, Ginger C. Margaret D., your turn for a question, please. Margaret D., star one to unmute. Daddy heard. I hear you now. Margaret, Margaret seems to be having some technical challenges this morning. Margaret, uh, now can I be heard? I hear you right now. Go for it with your uh, question. Okay, I'm not, I'm not touching the phone again. Believe me. Um, so I think this question has just been answered by Melissa, but I, but I'd like to ask it anyway for all three people. 
Um, do you find that the more that you do the 10th step, synchronicity seems to play a bigger part in your life so that now you're getting excited because these things are kind of dropping out of the blue and that it encourages you to do more of a 10th step and it becomes a thing to look forward to instead of kind of dragging your feet like you have to brush your teeth every day. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Gina R., how about you? You look forward to your 10 steps? Um, I do. I see them as, um, you know, they're the, they're the instruction that gets the promise flowing. So whenever I yield and open myself up to these simple instructions, then I'm going to get the promise. And so, yeah, it's pretty simple for me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And Greg B., how about you? Looking forward to for your 10 steps? Um, when I don't look forward to them is exactly when I need to look. So I don't always look forward to them. But uh, that's exactly, it's kind of like uh, the, the the quote attributed to uh, Martin Luther King or whoever said it. Uh, if you can't meditate for five minutes or ten minutes a day, then maybe you need to meditate for 30 minutes a day. So it's exactly what I need. And when I refuse it, that's symptomatic that I need to do more of it. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. Melissa C., how about you? Hi. So, okay, so I I have to say I don't look forward to the things that occur that cause me to need to do a 10 step. You know, I'm like, I'm not like sitting here saying, oh, I can't wait for my coworker to really get on my nerves tomorrow, or I can't wait for my daughter to have a mental health crisis. But do I look forward to the opportunity or the the lesson that I get? Right, there's like a there's a hit that we get. You know, there is there is like I get some big truth revealed, and it's like, oh, that's it. That's that's what I was supposed to get here, and and so yeah, that does fuel me. It does kind of keep me, um, you know, doing doing the work. But I wouldn't say that it's the the need to do it that I'm look that I look forward to, but it's actually the I guess it's the effect, right? That I get realigned with God and I get a big truth revealed, um, and I learn more. Um, thank you. With that I'll pass. Mm-hmm. Well put. Thank you. Thanks, Margaret D, for the question. Kathleen O, your turn. Good morning. Thank you so much. Um, I apologize if. I got on late this morning, um, so I apologize if this has been answered when the panelists were were, were doing their shares. But um, can each of you define, I know, so selfish is, you know, what did we want from this person, institution, or whatever. But I have sponsees get confused on the self-seeking part. And I have my definition of it, but could, could each of you give your definition of how you get to the part of where was I self-seeking? Thank you. Okay, self-seeking. Let's go one, two, three with with Gina R. first, please. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, hi, um, Kathleen. So it's it's pretty simple, and I, I've got a, a, a handy guide that helps me, but self-seeking could look like this, manipulating others to do my will, putting others down internally or externally to build me up, engaging in character assassination, acting superior, acting to fill a void, ignoring others' needs, trying to control others, 
getting revenge when I don't get what I want, holding a resentment, acting to make me feel good, and engaging in gluttony, lusting, shopping, etc. That's how I define it. And that's not all inclusive. I'm sure there's more, but that's a pretty good list for me. My pass. Okay, that's Gina R. Greg B., how about you? How do you define self-seeking? Mm. Well, I think that there's probably a lot of things, but but really it's it's when uh, I'm acting like a six-year-old or seven-year-old, and it's just all about what I want and what I want to do, or I'm you know boastful or or that kind of thing. When I'm not thinking about how I can be helpful for other people, when I'm thinking about what's in it for me, that's self-seeking. Um, yeah, it's a deep question. Thanks. Thank you. And Melissa C., self-seeking. Hi. Hi. Um, so I'm laughing because apparently Gina and I have the same cheat sheet. Um, and, you know, but I can I can think of, like, on, a, on like, personal, like, what, what is a self-seeking behavior? So if my selfishness is I'm, I'm upset that my neighbor is, like, going on another, you know, wonderful vacation and I'm all, like, like mad and, and feeling um, unhappy about that because I'm not. You know, a self-seeking behavior would be um, looking at their Facebook posts of their vacation endlessly. You know, and looking at it, I mean, so, like, here's where it gets ugly. Looking at it and zeroing in on um, what's, on their, uh, what's on the table, you know, in their, in their kitchen. I mean, like, it can get really ugly. Some of these behaviors, there's a reason why um, we hide and cover them up, because they're really not pleasant and pretty behaviors. You know, self-seeking is like, um, you know, saying these little comments to my husband to get him to do what I want, you know, um, pointing out, like, so here's one, telling my husband, I folded all, I folded all your clothes, I put all your laundry away, like, like, that's self-seeking, what do I want, a medal, you know, like, I just showed up and did something nice, and self-seeking is pointing out to somebody um, what it is that I did, Um, it takes many forms, our self-seeking behavior, you know it, um, when it's actions that you're not proud of um, and they're things that are trying to get others to do what you want. Thanks. I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Kathleen O., for the question. Leah S., your turn. Start. Uh, There we go. I got it. I got it. I got it. Excellent meeting. Excellent. Okay, my question. Um, in doing t- step 10, I, I get relief, but they keep coming up. And why do they keep coming up? Because I continuously have to deal with others' behaviors that are harmful. And um, perhaps it can be elaborated a little bit more. Because it's inevitable that I, I continue dealing with with um, with those other people, uh, professional people, and there is harm. So how 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 do I um, get past that if it keeps coming up? Aside from from really confronting and, and saying the truth, uh, it just keeps coming up. 
Thank you. Thank you, um, Leah. This is Gina. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll jump in there real quick. Um, so when you say it actually is harmful, um, that was something that I had to really um, run through God's grid work. Was I really accepting reality? Or is this, this harm something I'm just making up in my head and I'm remaining a victim? So if it's something that is truly harmful, and, um, for example, um, I was in a situation in my professional life where um, we don't call it this here in the U.S., but um, in the U.K. and in Australia, they actually have a term professional bullies. And I know we're talking about bullying and whatnot here in the U.S., but they actually have coined this term and they have processes and things to address it. I lived in a situation like that for a long time. I, I was actually being harmed, but a lot of it I was making up in my head. But there were things that were actually where I was being harmed. And I had to face the fact that if I did not take any action, then it couldn't be addressed. So that's definitely a situation where outside help would be indicated. And, um, but being super, super, super clear, are you just making up this harm in your head? Or are you truly being harmed? That would be my response. Thank you, Gina. Hi. Anybody, any of the other panelists, Greg or Melissa C., want to speak about this as well? Yeah, I did, actually. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say, you know, that um, that's a really good question because there are certain circumstances where um, – a resentment keeps coming up because somebody um, is behaving in a way that, that is inappropriate or is harmful. And um, and I think, you know, as a recovered woman, I have to have dignity and self-respect as well. I think those are God-given um, feelings. And when God arises in me, that feeling, you know, like I have had a situation with a friend um, who who drinks she's in the grip of an of of a disease she drinks way too much and she's done some things that <clears throat> were harmful and inappropriate you know one of which was providing alcohol and drugs for kids you know my daughter and and yeah to sit and just keep inventorying this and take no action would not be acting in anyone's best interest i actually had to take action i had to um, put up a barrier, put up, you know, um, and the person is not at a point where I can necessarily say anything to her. But um, but I had to create a distance there. I had to, um, and it might be different at work. You know, I have had people at work who I don't, I don't hang out in their classrooms. I don't sit and eat lunch with them because they are harmful. They are toxic people. And I can be patient, loving, tolerant, and kind, um, but I also don't have to put myself in harm's way and be a party to things that are hurtful. Um, I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Greg, so very much. Mm -hmm. Greg, did I hear you? Did you want to share experience on that as well? Perhaps. No, that's, that's good. I think uh, it's covered. Thank okay. you. Okay, got it. All right. So our final question today comes from Tara Kay.
Tara Kay. Sorry about that. Here I was talking. Um, thank you guys for all the wonderful clarification on step 10. Um, there's a million questions that could be asked, I'm sure, but uh, there's a situation. Um, I was spending money yesterday at a conference and I spent more than my husband was um you know in agreement with and comfortable with and um that was dishonest on my part of course so i probably answered my own question but um would you make apologies uh for things like that and and um do you wait sometimes until your mate is um more able to receive input from you. I think that's the question. Is that is that a clear enough? And you could generalize it more about you know timing and apologies um, for not for my sake, for my comfort, but for the you know for the um, well-being of the other person. Okay, thank you. Any of the panelists? Um, this is Gina. Yeah, I'll take a stab at that. So there were a couple things that you said that um, were keys, and um, you said you had an agreement with your husband, and so you guys have agreed that you're, you know, you're not going to spend more than a certain amount of money. So the principle of honesty would kick in, and and yeah, you need to tell him, you know, as soon as you can. Um, the other thing that I heard was uh, waiting until he's ready to receive it. To me, that's kind of um, what some people would call codependent behavior. That would be where I would be trying to manipulate his reaction. I am not responsible for anybody's reactions or emotions. If they have a reaction or an emotion, they're going to have it. But it's important for me to... Um, own my stuff and if I had an agreement with him and I didn't follow through on it and we said that we would let each other know if we didn't do that then that's what I need to do as hard as it would be and that is you know indicated in the ninth step amends process and whatnot so that's how I would handle it thank you Tina and either the other panelists want to address that as well Hi, yeah, it's Melissa. I would just say that in regards to making an amend to my husband, although I can't, I'm not going to manage and control what his response is, um, you know, an amend to someone else shouldn't come at their expense. So if it would embarrass him, if I were to do it in front of other people and he would be embarrassed by us having this discussion publicly, no, I don't do it there. Um, but I do, I have to make amends um, as soon as possible um, and, and be real mindful that it's, it's the amend is because I have gone outside of the ideals that we've established with our relationship, like money. You know, that's a big one. That's, um, you know, that's a trust that we are two people with access to a checking account and, um, 
and yeah, that is breaking a trust if I if I do you know if I behave um, irresponsibly with our money. Um, yeah, but I don't do it in a way that would make him feel uncomfortable and embarrassed. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa C. Thank you, Tara K. for the question. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you to our three panelists, Gina R., Greg B., and Melissa C. Thank you for your fabulous service this morning and for your thorough and very thoughtful, profound sharing on implementing this work in your personal Lives, Much appreciated. Very helpful. We're going to close now from page 164. You're going to notice that it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.